0: Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefandini. We are continuing our journey this fall through the Minor Prophets. This is our third week in our study of the Minor Prophets. I hope so far you have enjoyed reading along with us through the Minor Prophets today we are going to be looking at the book of Amos. And when I found out that I was going to be preaching on the book of Amos, this was the first thing that came to my mind. Famous Amos cookies. I love these little chocolate chip cookies. I love them in school. I love them on road trips. And this is Wallace Amos. He is the creator of Famous Amos Cookies. Started in 1975 in a bakery on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. I did not know that until this past week. My next thought after I thought of Famous Amos was, man, it'd be really cool if somehow I could work Famous Amos Cookies into a message on the book of Amos. My next thought after that was it would be even cooler if when I worked famous Amos cookies into a message on the book of Amos, I could give everyone a bag of cookies so that you will remember the message of Amos. So if you look at the back of the worship center this morning, you'll see that there aren't any cookies. (laughs) Because as cool of a thought as that was, it just didn't work out. But there is a lot of really good stuff for us in the book of Amos today that we're going to get to enjoy. And we are going to begin with setting the scene of Amos, with looking at the context of the world of Amos so that we understand what's going on when Amos is ministering, when he is preaching, and when he is prophesying. And to do that, we need to go all the way back to 2nd Kings 14. And in 2nd Kings 14, Amaziah, the king of Judah, challenged Jehoash, the king of Israel, to battle in 2nd Kings 14.8. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, with the challenge, Come, let us face each other in battle. Now at first, Jehoash says to Amaziah, you don't want to do this. He tries not to go to battle. He says to the king of Judah, you're not big enough, you're not strong enough, and you're not going to win this battle. So you really don't want to do this. But Amaziah would not listen. And because he would not listen, Jehoash attacks in verse 11. Amaziah, however, would not listen. So Jehoash king of Israel attacked. He and Amaziah king of Judah faced each other at Beth Shemesh in Judah. Judah was routed by Israel and every man fled to his home. So here we see our map of the two kingdoms After the kingdom of Israel split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, we have the darker green is the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah. This battle in 2 Kings 14 paved the way for peace between Israel and Judah for a certain time. From 783 to 763 BC, there was peace between Israel and Judah. This time of peace was during the reigns of King Jeroboam and King Uzziah, the two kings that are in power during Amos' ministry. Now, during this time of peace, both of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah enjoyed economic prosperity, they enjoyed the growth of their kingdoms, and there was also an increase in religious activity during this time. But what we see in the book of Amos is that God was not pleased with this religious activity. Even though worshipers were going to shrines and there was a constant flow of animals being sacrificed, this time of economic prosperity and peace and kingdom expansion and religious worship was characterized by moral and spiritual decline. It was characterized by social injustice in the kingdom of Israel. Even though there was peace and worship increased, the rich oppressed the poor. Justice was denied to those that needed it in the kingdom of Israel. And immoral sexual practices were indulged in by the people of Israel. And this is the world of Amos. This is what's happening in the world during the time that Amos is ministering. Everything that we know about Amos the man comes from his book. We know that Amos was a shepherd and he was a keeper of sycamore fig trees. Amos tells us that he is from the city of Tekoa, which was in the southern kingdom of Judah, but he prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel. And twice in the book of Amos, we are told that Amos was a shepherd. In Amos 1.1 1, 1 and in Amos 7.14. And even though in our English translations, we just see the word shepherd, in Hebrew, there are two different words used for shepherd to describe Amos in his book. In Amos one, 1, 1 the word that's used to describe Amos means sheep breeder. And it's only used one other time in Scripture in 2 Kings 3, in verse 4, to describe the king of Moab. It says, Now Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep. And he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. Now, from this context, what this tells us is Amos was not just a regular shepherd with a small flock. Amos was a shepherd who either owned a very large flock of sheep or at least maintained and oversaw this very large flock of sheep. And he would have also been an overseer of other shepherds. Well, in Amos 7.14, a different Hebrew word for shepherd is used. And that Hebrew word means herdsman. So Amos was a breeder of sheep, Amos was a herdsman, and Amos was a farmer living in the southern kingdom of Judah. Amos 1.1 says, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. And then Amos 7.14, in Amos 7.14, Amos answers Amaziah in for context, This is not the same Amaziah we just saw in 2 Kings 13. That Amaziah was the king of Judah. This Amaziah in Amos 7 is a prophet at one of the false temples in Bethel. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. So Amos was a sheep breeder, he was a herdsman, and he was a farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah who prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam. Uzziah reigned in Judah from 783 to 742 BC. Jeroboam reigned in Israel from 786 to 746 BC. So we know that Amos' ministry was sometime between 783 to 746 BC. But there's one other detail in the first verse of Amos that helps us narrow down when his ministry was. The writer of Amos says that Amos ministered two years before the earthquake. Now to us, that might not really mean a lot. But to the original readers of the book of Amos, that would have told them a lot. This Mentioning this earthquake gives credibility to the book of Amos. Zechariah mentions this earthquake in his book. The historian Josephus connects this earthquake which, with the events of Second Chronicles 26. So clearly, this earthquake was a very memorable event in the lives of Jews. It was so memorable that the writer didn't have to say when the earthquake was. He could simply say two years before the earthquake is when Amos ministered. To help us understand this, if I were to write a letter to you, most of you would get this. Some of the, the students probably wouldn't get this. But if I were to write a letter to you, and in that letter I said two years before the attack on the World Trade Center in which the Twin Towers fell, Corey was in the sixth grade. You would know when I was in the sixth grade. Many of you, probably the moment that I said that, remembered where you were on that day, September 11th, 2001, when the World Trade Centers fell. You would know that I was in sixth grade in 1999. This is exactly what it was like for the original readers of the book of Amos when they read that Amos ministered two years before the earthquake. We do not remember an earthquake that was 2,800 years ago. Thankfully, archaeological evidence from Samaria has been found that tells us there was a violent earthquake around 760 B.C. So Amos possibly, probably preached in the early 760s. I I feel pretty confident that we can say Amos preached in the northern kingdom of Israel between 764 and 760 B.C. So that's Amos the man. What about his book? The book of Amos is divided into two parts. The first part, chapters 1 through 6, are the words of Amos. And then the last part of the book, chapters 7 through 9, are the visions of Amos. What we see in this book is that Amos prophesied a judgment against Israel that no one would escape. And almost 40 years after his ministry, this judgment came through. The near day of the Lord came for the people of Israel, almost 40 years after Amos' ministry, when in 722 B.C., the kingdom of Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and took them away into exile. And if I were to summarize the book of Amos for us this morning, the message for us 2,000 years later today, it would be this. Seek God and live. This is the message from Amos to us today. Seek God and live. Turn away from your sin and live. Follow Jesus and receive life. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in Jesus and you will live don't seek the things of this world the things that this world has to offer but instead seek the Lord and you will receive his mercy and grace and the life that we find only in Jesus this was God's desire for the northern kingdom of Israel 2800 years ago this is still God's desire For his people, for you and I today, is that we would seek him and live. So now, let's dive into the book of Amos together. In verse 2, Amos gives us the theme of his book. This is a theme that the prophet is going to return to over and over again in his book. Amos is drawing the people's attention back to Jerusalem... And he is telling the people what God is going to do. And this is the pattern throughout the book of Amos. Amos is constantly drawing the people's attention back to Jerusalem and telling the people what God is going to do. Verse 2 says, Amos said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. So Amos, over and over again, he's drawing the people's attention away from their false places of worship, away from the false idols that they worship, and he's drawing their attention back to the Lord. He's drawing their attention back to Jerusalem, back to the God that they should worship. And he says here in verse 2 that the Lord roars like a lion. He roars like a clap of thunder. If you've lived in North Carolina long enough, You know what it's like during the summer, during a hot, muggy, humid day when a thunderstorm rolls in in the evening. And maybe you've even been in your house not expecting this thunderstorm to roll in. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, unexpectedly, there's a mighty clap of thunder, a loud clap of thunder, and it shakes the entire house. You know what this is like during the summer. We long for these to come in and cool off the weather a little bit. And when those thunderstorms roll in and the rain comes, it knocks down the humidity. And it feels a lot better. That's what Amos is describing when he says the Lord roars like thunder in verse two. The Lord's thunder is unexpected. It's mighty. It's loud. It's powerful. Powerful enough to shake the house. But unlike the summer thunderstorms here, when the Lord thunders in Israel, there is no rain to knock the heat and the humidity down. The Lord's thunder brings heat, or it brings a drought, and it brings His judgment upon disobedient Israel. Now Amos begins his preaching with God's judgment against Israel's surrounding nations. And he does this with a poetic style of for three and then for four. We see this in a few other places in Scripture. It's used a good bit in the book of Proverbs. It'll say for three and for four, and then there'll be a list of four things in the book of Proverbs. And this style of for three and for four in the book of Proverbs is there to draw our attention to the fourth thing on the list. It's there to highlight the last thing on the list, to make sure that we don't miss the last thing on the list there in Proverbs. Here in the book of Amos, there is no list. And these seven judgments of the seven surrounding nations of Israel, there's no list. Amos says for three sins and for four, and then he lists one sin of each of these seven nations. So it could be That Amos is just listing the fourth sin, the final sin that brought God's judgment upon these nations. Or by saying for three and for four and then listing one sin. Amos may just be summarizing the sins in total of these nations that brought upon God's judgment. And he begins with Damascus. He says in verse 3, God's judgment has come upon Damascus for brutal treatment of conquered Gileadites. Verse 3 says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Next, he moves on to Gaza And we see God's judgment against Gaza in verse 6. God is judging them because they captured and sold communities of people into slavery. Because they participated in slave trading. In verse 6, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Next, Amos moves on to Tyre in the north, and like Gaza, they have been a part of slave trading, and so God judges them in verse 9. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. Next, Amos moves on to Edom, and God is judging them for hostile action against their brother in verse 11 of chapter 1. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. Next Amos moves on to Ammon Ammon is judged for brutally killing pregnant women To extend the borders of their kingdom In verse 13 This is what the Lord says For three sins of Ammon even for four I will not relent Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead In order to extend his borders In the beginning of chapter 2 Amos moves on to Moab. And Moab is judged for defiling the remains of Edom's king. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent. Because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. And then Amos' seventh judgment is against the kingdom of Judah. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord... God is judging the king, the kingdom of Judah in Judah 2-4. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. So here in this map, We see all of these kingdoms that surround Israel that Amos begins his preaching, pronouncing judgment against. And at this point in his preaching and in his ministry, Amos probably was pretty famous with the people of Israel. At this point, they would have enjoyed his preaching. Jay Barton gives us an idea of why Amos started this way. He gives us two reasons why Amos started this way. He says, first, it ensures that the prophet's word of doom will be heard since he has gained his audience attention by flattering their feelings of superiority. So first, Amos begins by drawing in his audience and pronouncing God's judgment against all the surrounding nations, making Israel feel better about themselves. And the second reason that he does this Barton says, secondly, it makes it much harder for them to dismiss the prophet's message as mere raving, since they conceded that sin and judgment are rightly linked by their approval of what has gone before. So as Amos is preaching these judgments against the surrounding nations, the people of Israel are thinking, yeah, this guy's right. All of these nations have sinned. God should judge them. It's right that God judges them. And they most likely would have thought that when Amos pronounced judgment upon Judah, that he was done. Judah is the seventh nation that Amos pronounces judgment upon. Seven is the number of fullness or the number of completion. So they would have thought, man, we're doing really good. Here's this prophet from Judah coming to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's only pronouncing judgment against all of our enemies. Life is great. Go us. But then Amos begins his eighth speech in chapter 2. And unlike the seven that came before it, Amos lists multiple sins of Israel. The sins of the other nations, the first six nations that we looked at, are all sins against man. They are sins of humanity, of inhumanity against man. And then the seventh nation, the kingdom of Judah, is guilty of sins against God, against breaking the covenant with God. Israel has committed both. Sins against man, and they have broken God's covenant. And the judgment against Israel is the longest judgment in the book of Amos. And it begins in Amos 2, 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Now in these three verses, Amos lays out five charges against the kingdom of Israel. First, they have callously sold the innocent and poor into slavery. Judges accept bribes and the innocent are sold into slavery. Those who should have been declared not guilty and set free are instead sold into slavery at a very low price. Verse 6 tells us they were sold for silver, for a pair of sandals. You see those two are highlighted for you on the screen there. Silver goes with a pair of sandals. It matches a pair of sandals in these two lines. Amos is pointing out how cheap these bribes were. How little value there was on human life in the kingdom of Israel. That people were sold into slavery for a pair of sandals. In August... We went to the beach on vacation. The first day we got to the beach, we got ready to go down to the beach and I realized that I did not bring any sandals. I did not make this up for this message. This really happened back in August. I had tennis shoes and I had my golf shoes, but I didn't have any beach shoes. So I went to the nearest beach store and bought a pair of sandals. And I bought the cheapest pair I could find in the store for $12 dollars still feel like that was too much for a pair of sandals to use for a week but imagine valuing a human life at $12 that's that's a that's a concept we probably can't even wrap our minds around $12 as the value of human life. This is how little Israel valued human life, that they sold the innocent into slavery for the price of a pair of sandals. In verse 7, there are two more charges against Israel. First, the next charge is that the rich step on the poor and pervert justice. The poor are being treated like dirt. To translate verse 7 literally says the way of the afflicted they turn aside Israel certainly didn't care about their neighbor and they certainly were not loving their neighbor as themselves which is what we're called to do as followers of Jesus is to love our neighbors as ourselves the next charge against Israel is for improper sexual relations Amos tells us that a man and his father we're having sexual relations with the same woman. Now, we don't know if this was a temple prostitute used in worship to a false goddess or god of fertility, or if this was a slave servant concubine that fathers and sons were having relations with. What we do know is that it was wrong and it was against God's covenant. The people of Israel were breaking God's law. And we see the final two charges in verse 8. They were laying by altars on pledged garments. Back in this time, if you owed someone a debt that you could not pay, the person that lent you the money would come and they would take your cloak in repayment for the debt. But in the book of Deuteronomy... God told his people not to keep a poor man's cloak overnight because that's all the shelter that they had. You would come and take their cloak during the day, but before nightfall, you would bring it back to them. So at night, they at least had some type of shelter. The book of Deuteronomy also tells us that the cloak of a widow was never to be taken away. And yet here, the rich are oppressing the poor by taking their cloaks and then sleeping in them at these false altars overnight. And finally, Israel is worshiping false gods. The people are drinking wine in worship to false gods, and to make it even worse, if that's possible, this is wine that they have wrongly taken in fines. Wine that they have wrongly taken in taxes from people the powerful and the wealthy in Israel were enjoying themselves at the expense of the poor. And because of this, God hated and rejected their worship. Because of their actions, because of their heart attitude, God hated and rejected their worship. Even though they were coming to worship, even though they were bringing sacrifices The worship did not lead to a change in their heart. They were not worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. They were not living out the principles that Scripture taught. And so God hated and rejected their worship in Amos 5, starting in verse 21. God says, I hate. I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You see, God desires people to come and to worship in spirit and in truth. And He desires for our worship and our study of His Word to be lived out in our actions. And He desired it of the people of Israel 3,000 years ago, and He desires it of us today. God is not looking for people to just show up on Sunday mornings and check a box to just show up at community group and go through the motions of worshiping him, God is looking for worshipers that will follow him and live out what his scripture teaches. God is not taking attendance on Sunday morning. When you get to heaven, he's not going to look at your attendance record and say, okay, you were there more Sundays than you weren't. You get to come in. Now, I'm, I'm not saying don't come to church next week. We're still told together, together and worship. But don't think just because you show up to the Lord's house one day a week that God is pleased with the way that you are living your life. God desires for all of us to worship Him in spirit and in truth, to live out what He teaches Because Israel wasn't, he despised and he rejected their worship. Because the people rejected God, because they would not listen to his prophets, God is going to send the day of the Lord against Israel. And here's what's ironic. The people of Israel longed for the day of the Lord. They looked forward to it thinking the day of the Lord was going to be a day of victory and a day of light and a day of blessing and a day of hope. They believed because they were Jews and God had made a covenant with Abraham that simply by being descendants of Abraham, the day of the Lord was going to be a good day for them because they were God's chosen people. They thought it doesn't matter how we live. The day of the Lord will be good for us. And if I'm honest... I think sometimes we have that attitude in the nation that we live in today. We look around. We're the richest nation in history. We don't have to worry about persecution when we come to worship on Sunday mornings. We don't suffer like those overseas. And we think we are God's new chosen people. And the day of the Lord will be good for us. We don't have to suffer because we live in America and America is God's nation. Amos' message to the people of Israel was woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. It will not be a day of victory. It will not be a day of light. It will be a day of darkness. And my friends, I tell you this morning, For anyone who does not put their faith in Jesus, who does not surrender to Jesus and follow after him, the future coming day of the Lord when our king returns will not be a good day for you if you have not put your faith in Jesus in this life. I don't care how much you come to church. I don't care how often you go through the actions of worship. If you do not surrender to Jesus and follow after him, his return will not be a good day for you. Because for all those who are disobedient, for all those who choose to deny Christ, the day of the Lord will be a day of darkness. So I implore you today, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, make that decision this morning. If you have family members, as I do, who have not put their faith in Jesus, share the gospel with them when you get the opportunity. Because the day of the Lord is coming. We know that our King will return and for those who have put their faith in Jesus, that will be a sweet day. I, I long for that day because I look forward to the new heaven and the new earth and being physically in the presence of my Savior for all eternity. But at the same time, I don't long for that day for my cousins and the other people in my family who have not put their faith in Jesus because I want them to be with us on that day. And we do not know when the Lord will return. But today, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, there is still time. In verse 18 of chapter 5, Amos says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark, without a ray of brightness. Almost 40 years later, the near day of the Lord came for the people of Israel. When Assyria invaded and took them into exile. And in the last three chapters of his book, Amos has five visions of the coming judgment of the Lord. And we're just going to go straight through those this morning. In his first vision, he sees a swarm, he sees swarms of locusts coming to devour the land. Then he sees judgment by fire raining down to dry up the waters and devour the land. In his third vision, Amos sees God holding a plumb line. Now, a plumb line was a cord with a weight on the end of it that builders would use to make sure walls were straight up and down. They would also come back afterwards to see if the wall was still up and down or to see if it had settled, to see if it tilted. And if it had settled and tilted, it needed to be knocked down. And so When God holds this plumb line, he's holding it up to Israel and he's saying, Israel was built straight, they were built right, but they've settled and they're leaning and they need to be knocked down. Amos then sees Israel as ripe fruit, ready for the harvest, and God will no longer spare them. In his last vision, Amos sees God destroying the idol temple at Bethel. And by this point, you're probably wondering, where's the hope in the book of Amos? Because there's not a lot of hope in the book of Amos. We see a couple of times in the first nine chapters where Amos says, repent, and it may be that the Lord will allow a remnant to remain, which we know ultimately that he did. But the hope in Amos comes at the very end of chapter five, or excuse me, very end of chapter nine, starting in verse 11. It says, in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. And the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land. Never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them says the Lord, your God. After the judgment, God says that He will show mercy, He will show grace, and He will bring Israel back from exile. We know that that happened. But in Acts chapter 15, we see that this prophecy in Amos was coming true when the gospel went to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to Cornelius' house and shares the gospel with Gentiles. And they put their faith in Jesus and they receive the Holy Spirit. And five five chapters later in Acts 15, James, the brother of Jesus, says Amos' prophecy was being fulfilled as they put their faith in Jesus. And so I would say that Amos' prophecy is still being fulfilled today as we put our faith in Jesus Because through Jesus, all the nations are blessed. Through Jesus, who was 100% man, descended from King David, who was 100% God, the Son of God, all the nations are blessed. As he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins and rose from the dead so that we can have life. All the nations are blessed today. Through Jesus so how can we apply Amos to our lives today turn away from sin seek God and live repent from your sin repent is literally a big word that just means to turn away from your sin and to follow after God to seek him and live now what does this look like how do we seek God and live well, I have, I have an idea for that. In November, my nephew is turning three. And T.A. loves trucks. His dad, my brother-in-law, drives a white truck. But thankfully, T.A. takes after his Uncle Cory. T.A.'s favorite color is red, just like my favorite color is red. And any time that T.A. sees a red truck, he'll say something like, Is that Uncle Corey's truck? Or that's a red truck, but that's not Uncle Cory's truck. Or that truck looks kind of like Uncle Cory's truck. The other week I was talking to my sister, and she told me that lately, any time my truck comes up, whether T.A. mentions it or he sees a red truck and he thinks of Uncle Cory's truck, any time it comes up, he looks at his mom and he says, Mom, does Uncle Cory have a seat for me in his truck so I can ride with him yet? Mom, did Uncle Cory get a seat for me in his truck? Mom, does Uncle Cory have a seat with me? I want to ride with him in his truck. Finally, my sister said, T.A., next time we see Uncle Cory, we'll put your seat in his truck so that you can ride with him. And for me, that's a picture of what it means to seek God. It doesn't mean we just come to God and ask over and over again for what we want, like children are so likely to do. But the thing that we should want the most is to know God. And so we should seek to know Him over and over consistently again. Knowing God is not praying a prayer one time and then walking away not changed. Seeking to know God is regularly spending time with Him, daily diving into the Word, daily being in prayer, living a life of worship, seeking after Him, to know Him. This is what God wants us to do as we look forward to the future and final day of the Lord when Christ will return and establish His kingdom. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, HarvestCharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.